And some of those pictures, in fact, one of the pictures when you're coming down the hallway, you'll see the face of a young man who's looking through some bars. He is one of the guys who was not sponsored, who wasn't being fed, because we just simply didn't have room or money, and he is now part of the program. So he's no longer on the outside looking in. He is on the inside of Restoration Ministries in Jock Mill, Haiti. So it's really been unbelievable to watch uh, God unfold this. So um, I'm going to dismiss our... Uh, our students, they're going out on their, as if you were here earlier, on their first serve initiative, which is to go to MAMU, the Mobile Assault Ministry Unit, and to assemble our foosball tables and air hockey, the Olympic-sized air hockey table that we have out there. Uh, it is an air-conditioned uh, trailer, which is just God's sense of humor because he knows how much I hate hot, which is also why he sends me to Haiti, I guess. But, um, yeah, it was honestly a gift from the Peak family. Uh, and Mickey is here with us this morning. They're moving uh, to Hawaii. God is asking them to go and sacrifice their lives in Hawaii. And uh, as part of that sacrifice, they're, you know, I guess maybe to pay God, I don't know, as a high five, they're giving us the trailer for literally nothing. Uh, so it's awesome. It, it housed a really nice Camaro before, and now it will house the Conduit Church. So how about that? Um, if you are a visitor, first of all, welcome. Actually, you know what, sidebar. Doors are closed. This afternoon... At Donna's house, okay? Jim, our beloved children's guru design, we don't really have titles, we need to come up with good titles. Our children's dude, uh, who, if you've got a kid in the ministry, you know he's just incredible. Like, it's amazing what's happening back there. Well, Jim is turning 40, turned, past tense. 40. So there's going to be, and I know that there's loss and all that stuff, but this afternoon at 4.30 at Donna's house, a little surprise, he has no idea. In fact, he's been hacked all week because he can't go out and play golf today. He can't figure out, why can't we go play golf? She was telling me this. So, uh, so there's a little surprise party. See Donna afterwards if you want details for that. Uh, and it's a good way to say thank you to Jim and get free food at the same time. So <laughs> open your Bible to the book of Acts chapter 2. It's on page 963. Chapter 2, verse 42. And it says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And then down in the end, in verse 48, it says, And the Lord added to their numbers daily those who were being saved. That was Acts 2.42. Would you pray with me? It's always a good idea to pray when you approach the word. It's a supernatural book. Give it a supernatural approach, right? So, Father, we ask today that as we dig into your word that we're not here just to study it academically. And it's a good thing since I'm leading it. But we're here to encounter it spiritually, which is a good thing because you're here. We ask that you would speak to our hearts individually and to our body corporately. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, our church is less than two months old, and God has been so good to us, just like you would expect, because he's a good God. And part, I think, of his goodness, part of his kindness, part of his mercy to us, is he's just not bogging us down with a whole bunch of programs and stuff to do. I mean, if you're part of Conduit Church, we gather here on Sundays, and we are, it's more like we're getting our marching orders from the Lord. And then we go out and we be the church through the week. And then we come back here and we celebrate it. You know, it's, it's pretty much simple as that. You know, we, it's not that there's anything wrong with a church softball team. We just don't have one. 
our goal would be to not get you guys so involved to have something going on every night of the week so that there's, enough, there's no time for you to go be in your community. There's no time to you, for you to love your own families. I want you to have that freedom. And so we try to get a lot done in this, on our, in our gathering on Sundays, but knowing that this is just really one, one piece of a big picture. But if you're looking for, like, what is it that the church stands for? You know, the, the core values. And look, I've, I've wasted a lot of time at a lot of church planning conferences and a lot of time listening to others. And, and keeping in mind that mistakes and regret are not necessarily, they don't necessarily go hand in hand. Meaning that when you make, sometimes you make a mistake and say, okay, I went to this conference. That's not a bad thing because you learned what you, what you really don't want to be. Like, oh, I really don't have to do this. I don't have, we don't have to go blow it up, you know, with big postcard mailings and all those things. Again, not that there's anything wrong with that. It's just not, our, it's not a part of our sunset that we're painting here. So what I have figured out was that run around the world, try to find out what is it is that God wants to do in a church. And you can find it right here in Acts. It's real simple. This early church, 3,000 people had just gotten saved. A lot more than are here this morning. And, and now what do we do? We have this great amount of people, and what do they do? And obviously they did lots of things, but there were four things that they devoted themselves to. And it says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Those were the four things that the early church did and I would argue, I would suggest that if it was good enough for them, that it's, it's good enough for us. And as we're early on in this, it's, it's good for us to say out loud, what do we want to do? What do we want to be? How do we want to serve the Lord? To speak it out so that we hear it from each other, so that we know it, that it's repeatable in our own hearts. And so we talked about it. We talked about fellowship. And we talked about that it was more than just hanging out with the bros, right? More than just going to a lost party, even though that's fellowship. It's more than that, even though that's amazing. It's still more than the lost party. It's more than just the small group ministries where we come together and we bear our souls, even though that's another part of it. In Romans 15, when Paul was talking about an offering that was given to the poor, he says that when we sent this offering to the saints in Jerusalem, we sent our contribution. And that word in Romans 15 is koinonia, which is fellowship. It's the same word that we see here. They devoted themselves to fellowship. We sent our fellowship to you. And he talks about it again in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 when he says he's talking about that offering and saying we sent our offering to the saints who were poor, who were in need, and we sent our contribution, our fellowship. So this week... Conduit Church, we sent our fellowship to Haiti. It's amazing. You can fellowship with people you've never met. In fact, there's this real cryptic parable that Jesus talks about where he talks about the, the, uh, the parable of the shrewd uh, money manager and how he handled his money. He used his master's money to gain friends and, and he commended him for it. And, but he, at the end of that parable, I believe it's in Luke 8-ish, but at the end of that parable... He says that you, you and I, we should use our money to make friends that they might welcome us into eternity. There are little boys and girls in Jockmel, Haiti, in Togo, Africa, that we've made friends with that you've never met, but if they beat you to heaven, they will be there to welcome you into eternity. Our friends in Bellevue, I promise you some of them are going to beat us into eternity. We found that little retirement community over there where we were serving them side by side, these little 80 and 90 year old ladies who were living uh, in the floodplain and their houses were demolished. And we were over there making friends for 
eternity. We're sending our fellowship. We talked about teaching. We talked about that last week. And how the, the Bible, man, it's pretty awesome. It's a supernatural book. It requires more than we just study it. Psalm 119 says that we should keep it, that we should guard it, that we should know it, that we should understand it, hold it. It's the longest chapter in the Bible, talking about the Bible. It's not just an academic exercise. If your Bible reading has been dry lately, I would suggest that you get back into it and pray before you read it. Ask God, what are you saying to me today? Don't get bogged down in the one-year Bible because then all of a sudden it becomes a contest with yourself. Or worse, it becomes a, <laughs> becomes a failure for most of us because we get to Leviticus and we, you know, in February and we're done. But it's more than that. It's better than that. And when you encounter the Bible in a supernatural way, then it goes through you and it does what Hebrews promises. It divides inside of you from your soul and your spirit, those things in your life where you're not really sure. And if you, if you didn't, if you weren't here last week, I would encourage you to listen to it because it, we talked a little bit about that. There's things in our lives where we just, that's just how I am. You know, we've been around people that, this is how I'm wired. This is just who I am. And in my soul, whether it's I'm an angry guy or whether there's other sins in my life that I just say that's part of how I'm wired, it's my soul then Hebrews tells us that the word can cut a clear line between it. Where it might be blurry between my soul and spirit, the word cuts a line between it. So we talked about the word. Today, we're talking about the breaking of bread, communion, the Eucharist, which is a fancy Catholic kind of word, but it's actually the original word, the Latin word, where it means giving thanks for. The Eucharist is probably what you've been around. And I actually got saved for the first time I got saved like a hundred times when I was a kid. I went to a Nazarene church and he'd get up there and talk about if the eastern sky were to split and Jesus were to come back and I'd be down at the altar because, you know, I didn't know. And then those Billy Graham films came out and they were cutting people's heads off and I got saved again. And, but one of the times was I was in a little church of Christ and you had to be saved, baptized to take communion in this church. And I remember the pastor was a guy named Sherman Sack and Sherman was missing his ring finger. Now, this is germane to the story because he was going to give me five reasons of why to be baptized. And I have no idea of what those reasons were, but I remember thinking, what's he going to do when he gets to reason number three, you know? <laughs> and he did just, well, I guess it was half a reason. So it was basically four and a half reasons <laughs> to get baptized. But I was in third grade. When I first took communion. And here's the thing. These are four things. If, if you think of conduit as a vehicle of God's spirit into the earth. Okay. His love, which we talk about. We're a conduit of his love, his spirit, his resources to the community in front of us and the world around us. If it's a vehicle, if it's a car, then it's going to have four tires on it. And all four of those tires need to be moving generally the same speed, going in the same direction. And if one of those tires gets out of balance, if we tend to hang on one more than the other, well, you've, and my wife's, uh, the minivan of love, uh, the Honda Odyssey, the mom bomb, um, was a little, it was pulling to the right, okay? I mean, it was like, literally, it would make a right turn. You just signal and it would go. So I'd take it down to the Goodyear, and, you know, you do what you do. You sit for hours and wait and then about six hours later, in fact, I think I actually went home and then came back. I drive out of the parking lot, and I'm like, oh, thank God, you know, I've got to go. 
and I get onto the road, and it's like, still turning to the right. I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. So I call the nice and very earnest and helpful man, and he says, oh, yeah, we'll bring it back in. I'm like, well, yeah, but I don't have, like, another six hours to do this today. Like, you know, we can't. He says, well, bring it back when you have time. So I bring it back, like, a week later when I have time. It's the same thing over again. I go have lunch. I come back, drive off, and I kid you not, I, I hit the main road, and it take my hand off the steering wheel, and it goes to the other way, left. It's out of balance, and it still pulls to the left because we haven't taken it back yet. <laughs> but you know, just one tire pulling a little bit to the wrong direction steers the whole ship, right? And it wears down that tire. It wears down the tires because you're leaning onto one direction the whole time. You're constantly fighting. Man, I want conduit to be balanced. I want us to have a great balance of fellowship, a balance of prayer, of communion, of teaching. And think about it, how many times in your life have you, have you heard a teaching? You know, 10, 20, 30, hundreds? How many times have you heard worship music? Same. But how many times have you partaken of communion, of the Lord's Supper? I would venture to say that it's dramatically less. I would venture to say that it's probably, if you've been around churches like I have, maybe once a month. Because it's the first Sunday of the month. You get into rotation or whatever, you know, those the things that we do. But here in the church, literally Jesus has just flown off the earth like Superman. We're talking just a few weeks later. And they're devoting themselves to communion. Quick history of communion. Go with me to Exodus. Because this is something we want to be devoted to because it's what the early church was devoted to. We want to be devoted to it because Jesus said to do it. And if Jesus said do it, maybe we ought to do it. Exodus 24, real quick, I want to give you just, look, maybe you don't think like me, and if, if not, then feel, feel free to check out, and then I'll tell you when you can come back. But I like to kind of know the why behind the what. Why is it that we take the wine, and why is it that we take the bread, why can we sometimes dip it and sometimes we don't? And why do some people use real wine and some people don't? And... But why in general is, is communion important? If Jesus on the last day of his life said, do this in remembrance of me. By the way, isn't it, <laughs> you got to love Jesus. He didn't say build a monument. He didn't instigate a parade. He said, do this, a meal in remembrance of me. Jesus was accused of being a glutton by his enemies. Because he was always eating. He, was, he understood the power of a meal. When he was walking down the street and he sees Zacchaeus up in a tree, he does what? He invites himself over to dinner. Jesus knew how to score a free meal. The disciples, after his resurrection, the disciples are hanging out where they ought not to have been. They're, they're back on the sea fishing again because they've given up what God has called them to do, what Jesus asked them to do. And he goes to find them. And when they come back, he doesn't beat them over the head and call them idiots. No, he made them breakfast. He says in Revelation 3.20, he says, I'm going to knock on the door of your heart. And if you'll open up and let me in, I'll come in and sup with you. That's King James for chow down with you. The first thing we're going to do as a group in heaven is the marriage supper. Got to love supper. I'm from supper land. The marriage supper. Of course he would use a meal to remember him with. Of course he would. Exodus 24. Moses. Set the scene. He is, they're out of Egypt. They are 
across the Red Sea. They're getting ready to head towards the promised land. God has camped them out, and he's making a covenant with them. He is, well, for lack of a, a different phrase, he is, getting, he is marrying himself to them. And he says, verse 1, Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you, Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, 70 elders of Israel. You're to worship at a distance, but Moses alone is to approach the Lord. The others must not come near, and the people may not come up with him. When Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and the laws, this is the deal that God was making. These are the words, these are the laws, this is, this is God's vows, if you will, in the marriage ceremony. When he told them that, everything, it says, they responded with one voice, everything the Lord has said, we will do. If you're a Bible underline guy or girl, and if not, you know, I suggest that you are because it helps to bring back memories. But the word do there, this was a deal that was all about what they were going to do. All that the Lord said we will do. Moses then wrote down everything the Lord had said. Sidebar, parenthetically. Moses spent the first 40 years of his life in Egypt. Now keeping in mind, this was a bummer because his mom puts him in a boat and floats him down the river. That would have seemed like a really big bummer, especially if your mom, and of course we read it backwards, we've seen the, the little pictures and the, the color books, and we know how it plays out, but at the time, if you're the mom, when you're floating your kid down the river, that's an awful feeling. It seems like a terrible thing to go through. But Moses, from that action, was then educated in Egypt for 40 years. The culture that created papyrus, paper. The culture that pioneered written language. So that when Moses was told now, 80 years later, write this down, he could. Because he could write. He knew about paper. God, that thing that seemed to, like Moses got hosed, was God right in the middle of it, working it to your good. And so, I don't know if that re like resounds with anybody this morning, but if you're in a situation where you don't really understand it, I think it was Philip Yancey that said, of course, faith would be something that we don't, that we use to understand something in reverse that we couldn't have understand going forward. In other words, we don't understand it looking at the situation, but we will understand it looking backwards on it. That's faith. And faith was Moses saying, write this down. And Moses is like, got that one. Because <laughs> I had 40 years of that. Meanwhile, back in the study. He got up early the next morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and set up 12 stone pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Verse 5. And then he sent young Israelite men, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Moses took half the blood and put it in bowls, and the other half he sprinkled on the altar. And then he took the book of the covenant that he had just written and read it to the people. And they responded, we will do everything. We see that again. We'll do everything the Lord has said. We'll obey. Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Now, fast forward. It's another thousand years. Jeremiah 31. God has made a covenant with them, Jeremiah 31, page 707. He's made a covenant with them with blood, saying, your sin, my sin, man, it's not a wink and a nod kind of thing. It's serious. The wages of sin is death. Like that sin in my life, in your life, 
It kills marriages. It kills families. It kills ourselves emotionally, spiritually, even physically. God says it's not a wink and a nod. And Le- I think it's Leviticus 19 that says the life of the blood is in the flesh. Blood was used. Because keeping in mind, we read blood and it's kind of like, you know, because we're so used to it if you've been around a church. But blood, I mean, that's gross. Like it makes people pass out. It makes, it stinks. You know what I mean? It's blood. Yuck. But it is, a, it speaks of the seriousness of it. But here's the problem. This blood from these bulls and rams, Hebrews 9 and 10 would tell us, it's not, it wasn't enough. It was like taking a Band-Aid and putting it on a wound that required surgery. It was temporary. So there would be a new covenant that would be made because did Israel keep their word? No way. A marriage that had been put together, God had married them, so to speak, and they did not keep their vows. I love it because Jesus is the only reason in the Bible that he gave as legitimate reason for divorces and unfaithfulness. Isn't it interesting that God gives that as the only reason for a divorce in our lives, but in his own marriage with us, we have not been faithful and he doesn't take his out. And in Jeremiah 31, he says, and if you don't have this underlined, asterisked and starred, think about it. Because this is the new covenant. The New Testament that you read, these books in the last you know, part of your Bible, we call them the New Covenant, the New Testament. They're under the New Testament. They're under the New Covenant, but they are not the New Covenant. The New Covenant is right here. This is the actual deal. Everything else in these New Testaments, the books that we read, are discussing and under and, you know, grace and all those things that happen because of this covenant, this deal. It says, the, the time is coming, declares the Lord. Verse 31, chapter 31. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, and it will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a, what? Husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, know the Lord. Because they will all know the Lord. They will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. Matthew 26. That is the deal. Go to Matthew 26 with me. That's the deal. It's no longer do I got to have a guy speaking on my behalf. No longer is Moses going in ahead of me and I'm standing behind at a distance so he can come out and tell me what the Lord has said. He says, I'm going to do that to you. So this was the, the promise that they had. And it was a promise that these guys would have known well so that on the last night of Jesus's life in Matthew 26, they're sitting at the table, the, the Passover dinner, the dinner that talked about where in the Jewish family the, the father would, they would, feed, uh, they would have the meal and then the father would, would take time to explain, hey, this is the bread and it's unleavened and it speaks because there's no sin in our lives now and we're clean because of what God, it's, that was the dinner they were having. That's what Jesus had. So he takes the fourth cup, the last cup of wine, which was the Hallel, the Hallel wine. I don't, you know, you think, well, I have no idea what that means. Hallel, it's basically, it speaks of, think Hallelujah. Praise Yahweh, God. The Hallel cup, the cup that spoke of the future, the cup that spoke of Messiah that was coming. And he said to them, Matthew 26, verse 26, while they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, saying, take and eat. This is my body. 
And then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many of you for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. This would have been mind-blowing for them. This is my blood of the covenant. The covenant that Moses talked about, the covenant that Jeremiah talked about, the blood of the covenant. Jesus was splitting history in half. They would have known that this was the promise that was to come. And he said, do this in remembrance of me. Now, if you don't like flipping through your Bible, I really apologize. There are a lot of great churches in town where they don't do a lot of Bible flipping. And I'm sure you, we just, we just go through the Bible a lot. I'm sorry. 1 Corinthians 11. Because now it's like 30 some years later. They've instituted this. This communion. Do this in remembrance of me, Jesus said. And Paul, in this town of Corinth, he had been with him for about 18 months. And while he was there, he instituted something he called the Agape Feast. Which is also known as the Love Feast. Sounds like something they do at Bonnaroo, doesn't it? It's the Love Feast. Jude chapter well, there's only one chapter. Jude verse 12 refers to this love feast, this agape feast. And so now it's five years later. Paul is long gone. He's writing him a letter saying, hey, look, you guys, seriously, this is not at all. It is like Bonnaroo now. What's happening with this love feast that I have put in place, this agape feast. And so he writes them this, and you got to love it, because if you want to get your butt chewed by Paul, this is what it's going to feel like. So says, on the following directives, I've got no praise for you. He's basically, you've got to be kidding me. Your meetings do more harm than good. It's like saying, you might as well not even come to church because you guys are blowing it so bad. It actually would be better off if you just stayed home. Your meetings are doing more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and that to some extent, I believe it. No doubt, there have, been, uh, there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. When you come together, it's not the Lord's supper you eat. Verse 21, for as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry, another gets hammered. Don't you have homes to go eat in? Don't you, dis- or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Absolutely not. Verse 23, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this, and whenever you drink it in remembrance of me, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Paul sets in motion the Lord's Supper. They would have this, I guess as best I could tell, the the first potluck dinner in history. They'd bring food together, but at the end they would celebrate the Eucharist. They would take communion in remembrance of the Lord. And he goes on to say, therefore, 
Whoever eats the bread, verse 27, or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread, drinks of the cup. For anyone who drinks and eats without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. And that is why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. I thought about skipping that. I thought about it a lot. Because I don't like that. Because as best I can tell, what Paul is saying is you guys, if we haven't given worth to the Lord's body, that there's going to be some consequences for that. Not eternal damnation, eternal judgment. That's taken care of at the cross. You and I, if we've accepted the Lord and we, we you know, we're to die, we'll step right into eternity with our Father, forgiven. But on this side of heaven, there's some real interesting things, and there's occasionally things you'll come to in the New Testament, or Old Testament for that matter, but I don't want to talk about that very much. Because it's a little hard, it's a little tricky, it's a little weird. But he says it, he says, there are those who are among you because you haven't given worth to this, that there's some things going on in your life because of it. And I would say to you and I this morning, that I don't want this to be, it ought not to be a heavy thing in our lives. It ought to be not a looking back and say, oh man, I've, uh, but instead of that, a looking forward in our lives, saying, look, at Conduit Church, we have it available every Sunday for you to partake of communion. It's just a part of what we do, a part of who we are Because we want to come together in remembrance of the Lord's body, the Lord himself. And I believe that as we do that, that there are things that happen that are supernatural. Look, it isn't the bread. I don't know if we got it at Costco this week or if Michelle made it. Michelle, so maybe it is supernatural because Michelle made it. But the juice, I mean, that came from Kroger probably. There's nothing supernatural about the elements. It's the experience. It's you giving your heart over to the Lord and taking a moment to remembering the Lord. And when we do that, supernatural things can happen. And I want you to know that I believe healing is one of them. 1 Peter 2 talks about that by his stripes we are healed. And there are those that would say, yeah, Darren, that talks about spiritual healing. And I, and I, look, I get it. That, that sounds like a lot easier. But in Matthew 8, when Jesus was healing people, they actually quoted Isaiah 53 and said, this is what was spoken of, that by his stripes they were healed. The physical healings that Jesus did. Isaiah 53, Matthew 8, 1 Corinthians 11, 1 Peter 2. Are you saying, Darren, that I can have, that healing is for me? Yeah. I mean, I didn't say that. Jesus did. The only question for me is, when? Is it today when you're partaking of communion? Will it be today that maybe you'll enjoy that healing? Will it be next week, next month? Will it be in heaven? I don't know when. That's my only question that I stumble sometimes on. But I do know that it is paid for, that it is part of what happened at the cross by his stripes when he was beaten, that you and I were healed.
So as you partake of communion, know that that is something that God promised us. And know that it's a reason why we ought to be doing it often, to come together and to remember the Lord. A couple of mistakes, and then we're going we're gonna to hang up, and then we're going to just connect to the Lord. And our, our little table is open for you to remember the Lord. But I, I want to throw a couple of things out really quick, because I think we make a couple of mistakes when we do communion, when it's a part of our lives. One is this idea that it has to be this somber, remembering the process of Jesus' death. I'm not 100% sure that was his intent. I'm for sure it wasn't his total intent to just remember the process of his death. Matthew 26, he said, do this in remembrance of me. Do, of me. The, the, I'm the dude that walked on water. I was really funny. And I healed people. And, you know, they, they, remember that time they tried to kill me and I just walked. Do this in remembrance of me. The me that was on the earth, the me that did die on the cross, the me that did raise from the dead. Not the emaciated, skinny, scrawny, in need of a membership to the gym Jesus that we've seen so many times that's just hanging there. We, we are remembering the God of the universe who is eternal, who is forever, who is omnipotent, omniscient, who knows everything I've ever done, everything I'm going to do today, everything I ever will do. He's the guy that paid for it all, the guy that can sneeze stars. He can make it rain turtles if he wanted to. With that, we're doing it in remembrance of him. Do this in remembrance of me. And Paul would say, I think it's verse 27, we'll do this, we'll proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so I think that the mistake is, is that we kind of make it this somber, oh, I'm so, woe is me kind of thing. I don't know that that was his intent. I think that the intent was, I mean, Paul celebra- he instituted a love feast, for crying out loud, a celebration of what had happened. And of course, they took it too far. But if it were instituted as a little somber, you know, lock myself in a room with candles and mood music, and if that's the way it was instituted, it would be a long walk from there to the love orgies that he's talking about. I mean, this was, a, this was instituted as a celebration, something that you and I, yeah, it's, it's good for us to examine ourselves. Absolutely important for us to go there and say, yeah, God, this is in my life. Look for the wicked ways in me, and what a great opportunity to remember that I could be forgiven of that. So, one, I don't think that we need to make it a somber thing. The second one is this. There's this idea that even comes from this chapter that if I am unworthy, if I've got some sort of secret sin in my life, if I've got no membership to this church in particular, there are all these obstacles that we put in between us and communion as if the Lord's table needs protecting. I don't know that it needs to be protected. I think it needs to be imparted to us when we go to Haiti and we've got a little kid out there that needs to eat, we don't say, hey, look, go put some weight on, young man, and then come back and talk to me about it. That's ridiculous. Of course he's skinny. That's why he's looking for food. Of course I'm sinful. That's why I'm partaking of communion, to remind myself of the forgiveness. I'm examining myself. This, in an unworthy manner, when you read it in the context of the whole chapter, chapter is saying, when you come and you're doing it in a party and you're having a good time and it's Bonnaroo, but with, that's like my third Bonnaroo reference, I'm sorry. But it's like, you know, party time with Jesus. Like you're, when you're not giving worth to the actual event, 
itself. Not you yourself being worthy, but approaching it, giving it the worth that it's due. That this is a moment for us to celebrate the Lord, to celebrate what he's done for us. And when I don't do that in a worthy manner, Paul says that there are many of you that were sick. There are many of you who are falling asleep, which is a Greek euphemism for dying. And sometimes you just got to let the word, you know, we can try to interpret the word to make it say whatever we want it to. And sometimes you just need to let the word say what it said. And that's what it said. And at Conduit Church, not only are we going to devote ourselves to prayer and to fellowship, to teaching, but we're going to devote ourselves to communion, to the Eucharist, to giving thanks for what Christ has done for you, for me, on a regular basis. It will always be available every Sunday to anyone who wants to come to the table. And when you come to the Lord's table, you join the entire world. We are probably, as far as I can tell, the first generation in history that hasn't taken the Lord's Supper seriously as a central part of our faith. But you join 10 million Christians in house churches in China. You join the church in Indonesia. You join the the underground church in Pakistan, Afghanistan, Iraq. It is a universal event. And when we do that, we join together with the entire world at the Lord's table. And as we do these things, as we do this today, it says the Lord added to their numbers daily those that are being saved. And you might look around the room and say, yeah, but well, I don't see anybody. They're meaning the church, the church, not just our church, the church. So as we're focusing on these four things, communion included, when you've got David Whetstone in Africa, I mean, Adam leaves for Africa in two weeks, uh, Ben in Haiti, I mean, there's, there are people all around the world right now from Conduit that have either been sent there by us, paid for by us, and let me tell you what, we met one of them this morning on video, the Lord is adding to our, to their, to our, the body of Christ's numbers daily, those that are being saved. And all we're doing is celebrating these four things. We're devoting ourselves to these four things. I wish it was harder than that. I really do. But it isn't. And so today, if, if our worship leaders would, would come back, when Jesus, it says in Matthew 26, when they, and when they got up, they went and sang songs. The Lord's Supper, they sang psalms. What a a better atmosphere. And you'll always know that during worship, it's a great time to partake of the Lord's Supper. And it's your time when God leads you to do it. We don't pass it around. Uh, We we dip in the, the juice here. No spiritual reason for that. That's just the way we do it. But know that as we're worshiping, you are invited, encouraged, suggested to follow the early church's lead in taking communion and letting God supernaturally do what God supernaturally does in your heart, in your lives, in your physical body as well as in your spiritual bodies. Father, we devote ourselves to this this morning, to the breaking of bread, to communing with you. 
Your body was broken. Your blood was shed. That is what we remember. But we don't remember just the process of your death, but the purpose of your death, which is our freedom, our healing, our miracles in our own lives, not just physical, but spiritual. Thank you for that, God. Thank you so much. In Jesus' name, amen.